Presenting Danforth Dialogues, a monthly podcast on leadership hosted by Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. This month, we are pleased to have Chris Womack, the first African-American to be named President and CEO of Southern Company, the nation's third largest utility company. Mr. Womack assumed the helm of Southern Company earlier this year after serving as chairman, president, and CEO of Georgia Power. He joined Southern Company in 1988 and has served in a number of executive positions, including senior vice president and senior production officer at Southern Company Generation and senior vice president and chief people officer for Southern Company. Earlier in his career, Mr. Womack served as a legislative aide for former Congressman Leon Panetta. He is a graduate of Western Michigan University and has a master's degree from American University and completed the Stanford Executive Program. Dr. Montgomery Rice and Mr. Womack will discuss a range of topics on leadership and equity. Now for this month's episode, here is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Welcome to Danforth Dialogues. As you know, each month we bring leadership insights from a wide range of guests, and today I am so pleased to be joined today by Chris Womack, the first African-American to be named CEO of Southern Company, which is based right here in Atlanta, and it's the third largest utility in the United States. Chris has had a long and successful career as a corporate executive, and we're looking forward to his thoughts on leadership. So Chris, first, let me congratulate you and welcome to Danforth Dialogues. Well, thank you very much, and it's an honor to be with you in this dialogue. I am, and I've been looking forward to doing this and having this time with you. Right, thank you so much. Let's, let's talk about these early days in your career, particularly in government, and then you moved to Southern Company, but first, why did you make the switch and second, what did you learn during this time when you were working with the former Congressman Leon Panetti that helped you to maybe prepare for going to corporate America? Dr. Rice, I, I've always enjoyed government. And my mother would tell you that I would ride my bicycle to city council meetings in Greenville, Alabama uh, when I was growing up. So I always enjoyed enjoyed government. I always enjoyed politics. and And so... That's something that was always intriguing to me. And when I went to, when I went to college, uh, my undergraduate degree was in political science as well as my master's. And so I had returned back to Alabama after graduating from, from Western Michigan up in Kalamazoo. And my mother wanted me to be a teacher. I came back home and I did a few days of student teaching and realized that was not for me. In Greenville. In Greenville, Alabama. Okay. And I realized that was that was not for me. I didn't have the patience. I just, I realized I didn't have it. And so one morning I decided I was going to pack my car up and drive to Washington, D.C. and seek a job in the nation's capital. And so after a few weeks of looking for different opportunities, I ended up uh, interviewing with Congressman Panetta and successfully uh, got a job in his office. And Leon was a, you know, I, I, I tell the story, he was a hardworking, passionate driver of, of people on his staff. But he was also an incredible nurturer, father figure, 
uh, kind of showed all the compassion uh, that you would want in a in a, in a family. But more importantly, when you get it in a job, it's a, it's 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 a, it's it's an extra benefit. And so, I learned how to work hard. I mean, I there was nothing to work 14, 16 hours a day on Capitol Hill. There was nothing to learn multiple subjects. I mean, I worked on on healthcare matters. I worked on on the first Hospice Reimbursement Act uh, back in 1982 uh, when we expanded, uh, included hospice coverage under Medicare. I mean, I worked on immigration reform. I worked on a lot of different things. So I picked up the ability to be adaptable and flexible and and not shy away from the hard work, which I think has served me well in the latter years of my career. So I'm, I'm, I just got to take you back, though, to um, that conversation you had with your mama. Right. And now you're back in Greenville. Right. And this is probably the late 70s. You graduated yeah, yeah, from college. Yeah, yeah this is the And late, you late 70s. don't have a job. No, no, I don't have a job. And you getting ready, you packing up your, what kind of car did you have? I had a Fiat Spider. Okay, okay. I probably had, couldn't carry much in it, there. No, I had a green Fiat convertible Spider. And you told her that you were going to the big city. Going to the big, yes. And you didn't have a job. Right. And she said? Well, Fortunately, also, my grandmother was at home as well. Okay, good. They can save and, you sometimes. And, and, and my grandmother was the kind of spiritual champion. She was mother of the church, and so she kind of led by faith in everything that she did. And so she would always say to my mother, whether when I wanted to play football or whatever I wanted to do, she would always say, my, mother, my mother's name was Ruby, and she would say, Ruby, let that boy go do what he wants to do. And that's kind of how I was raised, particularly with my grandmother and that, she always instilled in all of us, uh, myself and my other two brothers, that we could be whatever we wanted to be. And so there was nothing in her mind that was not possible. Uh, faith was a big part of it. Uh, also, you got to put the work in. You got to do the work. You got to prepare. Uh, but standing on faith, she she was incredibly always faithful and optimistic and hopeful for what life had to offer. And so. She was one that was not hesitant or reluctant about allowing us to take incredible risk. Well, I, I, I wanted to bring that out because I've heard you speak about the impact of your mother and your grandmother and really your grandmother and how she sort of uh, gave you license to, to be. And I think that that is so powerful for the young people who hopefully are listening to this podcast and understand that it is our life experiences and those who influence our life that sometimes give us license to be in. And it's okay to take risk, even with guardrails. Oh, there's no question. I mean I, I mean, I mean, I think about her so often because, I mean, I go back to the times, and, and we've seen the movie The Green Mile and, and the experiences of traveling up and down the highways and byways uh, during, during the periods of segregation. And so... We had uncles and aunts who lived in Chicago and Detroit, and there was nothing more special than preparing to take that trip because we spent two days frying the chicken and and, and, and and the pork chops and wrapping it up in white bread and then putting it in aluminum foil, and then you just couldn't wait to that moment where— we could un unveil it, and you're only about twenty miles out. Only about twenty, only about twenty miles out. But it's but it's time to eat, and it was just, it was just a wonderful time. Even though you know you 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 know the you knew the time and the experiences in terms of the limited places we could stop for gas, and and we had to prepare the food because there were very 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 limited places where we could stop to eat, and so it was just a wonderful 
experience of having the five of us, my two brothers and, and my grandmother and my mother, here we are driving 16, 17, 18 hours to Chicago. And, but it was just such a wonderful experience that I that I'll never forget. Well, good. And it, and it sounds like it really did uh, prepare you for this relationship that you ended up having with the con Congressman Panetta Abs at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he appeared to be this figure that sort of rounded things out for you. No, he did. And, and, and I think uh, with what he has also gone on to do in his life, from being congressman to being head of the OMB uh, in the Clinton administration, then being uh, chief of staff to President Clinton, being uh, head of the CIA for President Obama, then President, I mean, Secretary of Defense Department uh, under Obama. I mean, just all the things he's done and kind of how he is viewed in this world and in the policy arena, being this somebody's going to get cut to the bottom of it, get to the get to results, make things happen, but do it not in a political divisive way, but finding, bringing people together. And actually, he wrote a book entitled Bringing People Together. And so I learned a lot from that as well in terms of how to work with Democrats, how to work with Republicans, how to deal with people with different perspectives, and how do we find common ground uh, to get to a wonderful outcome and solutions that will benefit everybody. So, you know, Chris, as I, as I listen to you talk about your path here, it seems like you have one of those resumes that's sort of straight out of what I would describe as executive central casting. You know, you got to be a jack of all trades, but you started to master some of these things, clearly. Uh, you joined Southern Company, and you went from one major job to another until you reached the top. But we know it doesn't quite work that way. We know that uh, there were some real decision points that you had to make as you were entering the workforce. So tell us about some of the decision trees of how you actually looked at your past, looked at where you wanted to go, thinking about your future, thinking about some of the opportunities, but yet the barriers that you were going to face, how you used that those experiences to help you on that decision tree when you wanted to look at that next job? Well, I mean, I, I mean, once again, I, I, I reflect back on a number of decisions I made because when I joined the power company, uh, I still had this yearning and this desire to do public service. And so I had been offered a job with the mayor of the city of Birmingham at the time, but I said, okay, let me go do this business thing for, for a minute. Let me put this on my resume, and because I, I I I didn't care about business, I didn't care about I didn't care about money, I didn't care about those things. I said, let me do this thing. Let me diversify my my resume for 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 just a little bit, and then I'll go back and do this go do this political thing. Well, here we are, some thirty five years later, uh, and we're still thinking about going back into the uh, in public service. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I was. I kept getting different opportunities uh, in the company. And once again, I think the foundation that I developed working on Capitol Hill, dealing with different different subject matters, afforded me the, the ability to pick up different responsibilities at, at, at the power company from the early days in government affairs to public affairs, then moving over to run corporate real estate, uh, the fleet department uh, facilities. Uh, and so I was... I picked up that that ability to to adapt and then I came to Atlanta one day and the chairman of Southern Company asked me if I wanted to run human resources. And I said of now, course. Now did you have any human resources experience? I couldn't spell human resources. Okay, couldn't spell it. Couldn't, couldn't spell it. But I but I was confident in my ability to lead and to learn and to adapt. 
And and one of the things at that time, it made a lot of sense because some communication background that I had and we were changing the organization. And so internal employee communications was very important. Benefits communication was very important. So I had the skill set at the at and what was needed at that time to take on that responsibility, and so I changed it from being head of human resources. I became the chief people officer uh, because we had a chief information officer, we had a chief financial officer, we had a bunch of other chiefs. So I said, I guess you know I should be a chief as well, you know. So we got rid of that HR uh, label and became the chief people officer and. Because I viewed myself as being the advocate for the people. Right. And so, and so, Chris, the other thing that I'm hearing, and because and, I know you, so I know there's a, a humbleness, but there's also a love of confidence. Where did that germinate from? Was that from grandmama? That was from, that was from my grandmother. My grandmother yeah, always yeah. said, like I said, and, and no matter what we encountered, and like I said, we, and, and I grew up in the 60s in, in, in South Alabama, so I, I saw a lot. And, and I saw, saw a lot of discrimination in terms of whether it's restrooms at, 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 auto, at automobile repair shops or at the doctor's office when my mother was sick and couldn't be. We had to go to the black waiting room and, and wouldn't, didn't get seen and a lot of things we experienced. My grandmother always said, you are you're just as good as anybody and you're better than most. Mm-hmm. And no matter what we faced, no matter when we got punched in the face, no matter what happened, she always said, you know, you're good and you're better than most. And so that gave me and gave, I know, my brothers uh, incredible confidence that we could be whatever we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So you, you're talking about early lessons as a foundation. Tell us how that uh, has influenced your leadership style and why you believe you've been so effective over the years? Um, I, I believe in teams. I believe in bringing people together. I believe in people collaborating. I believe in in us doing it with an incredible degree of enthusiasm and excitement and, and, and enjoying the work that we do in terms of how that lifts, lifts up the team. Uh, I also enjoy that engagement with the individual members of the team in terms of understanding what they're good at, but also identifying and talking to them about areas where they need to get better. And I think with that kind of uh, frank, honest, direct feedback and conversations, it, it builds teams. It, it builds trust. It, 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 it comes along with wonderful communication that, that I think is, is essential uh, for organizations uh, to, to be successful. And so as I have, as I've moved from job to job, that's one of the things that I've always tried to do in terms of being being very intentional about building teams and 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 developing talent and looking to say who who's going to come behind me and and giving people hope and opportunity for them being all they can be. That's that's really important, and we and we know that you know leadership isn't a one way street, and many of us who are blessed to lead others. Uh, get to learn from them instead of always just bossing them around. Sometimes we Absolutely. actually learn some things from us. Can you give us some examples of things that you've learned from people that you were leading? Oh my heavens! I mean, there. I mean, there. There, there are so many things. I'll, I'll go back to uh, one of my one of my supervisors and bosses because I mean, and he challenged me early on in my career that if I was going to be 
uh, probably a, a CEO, which I de- never thought about being, that I had to go do some things different than I had done before. So then I went and took a job in, in running the power plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. A totally different skill set and mindset that I that I, I had been prepared and trained to do. Uh, kind of like that HR thing. Yeah. Kind of like the HR thing. Okay, so, yeah, okay. so here I am being the chief people officer, and then all of a sudden my next job is going to run power plants. So kind of totally different parts of the brain, uh, totally different skill sets, but once again, uh, that helped me in my in my growth and development, but also helped me in my understanding, better understanding of the uh, of of the company. And so, as I was in the power plants, and one of the things that you know it's very technical, and 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 the people in the plants are what I call the salt of the earth, and we had a turbine that that had a, had a cracked blade, and one of the uh, gentleman who was uh, head of that head of that department said, called me up and said, "Hey, we got this problem. If you really want to learn this business, now is the time to learn it." As we you know, take the turbine out, as it cools down, we get to look inside of it and see what's going on. We get to learn how it. Um, how, I get. Now to you're learn. a political science major. I'm a political right? science major. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm, I'm looking inside I'm of a checking. turbine. Okay, right. I'm, I'm looking inside of a turbine, uh, and so, but once again. Here it is, this frontline employee giving me advice, coaching me, learning me through. This is how you understand this part of the business. And so I used the next six to eight weeks following that turbine around from from from, from our plant Wansey down in Noonan, Georgia, up here to Atlanta, then up to North Carolina uh, to get it repaired. Uh, following the team around to learn, learn from them in terms of how the process worked. And so, yeah, I learned how the process worked, but also... I developed this one of them camaraderie with that team because they know, hey, he's he's here in the trenches with us. Right, right. I mean, he's it's definitely. Yeah, he's, the, he's there again, with us. Again, I said you were a humble person. A lot of times, you know, when you get to be CEO, people think you forget that word. No, 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 no. See, the other thing, is, I'll tell you a sidebar about all of this. The other thing about being at the power plants, there's they love the work they do, but there's nothing more important than cooking. Mm-hmm. And so oh, yeah. whether they go hunting or fishing on, on the weekends, during the week, they're going to bring that in to cook. And so I love freshwater fish. I love brim and catfish and all that stuff. So they'll call me up, hey, Womack, we're cooking this afternoon. And so I cop in the car. I had to tell it down there to make sure I got me some, got me some fried catfish, you know. And, I, I know. My, yeah. my, my husband was a startup engineer for the Saturn company, and he would talk all the time about love cooking cook. at the plant. They love to what cook. They, what they love to cook at cook. the plant. So yes. let's talk about um, something that I think is, 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 is pretty phenomenal. You are one of four African-American CEOs mm-hmm. of an S&P 100 company, largest publicly traded companies in the country. Right. You and I both know that African-Americans only represent 12% of the population, but we only represent 4% of S&P CEOs. And we got a long way to go to reach any level of parity. How do you assess the progress you've made and how you've been able to pull others along with you as you have climbed this ladder? I mean, I, I feel good about the progress we've made in terms of the number of African-Americans, the number of female officers that we have at our company today than what it was when I first joined it. I mean, there, a lot of work has been done. I've done a lot of work, but a lot of other people, other leaders in the company have done a lot of work uh, from maybe one or two. When I first started now, we're up in the probably the plus 30 ranks in terms of the numbers. 
And so we have made incredible progress and and looking forward to even doing even more in terms of giving people the opportunity. And 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 that's the thing I think all all across the business community is is organizations giving everybody a fair shot at them being all they can be and and supporting them uh, when they do well, but also helping them to develop skill sets that where they have to get better, and but also making sure they have champions and inside the company, make sure they're champions inside the boardroom, making sure they're champions also externally that 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 knows kind of the struggle but also the depth of the work that that that's getting done by these individuals and so it's a it's a real conscious collective effort that i think that has to be done uh to make sure that we continue to increase the ranks of representation inside of our company but also increasing the ranks of representation at other fortune 500 companies in terms of ceos you know, Chris, I, I think it's so important that uh, we bring into the conversation something that I think is is always uh, controversial, and 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 I'm going to bring this up in the in the way of you talked about all the different places and spaces you moved in Southern, you built relationships, you had humility, you were always listening to learn, you were ready to receive, and I know you gave a lot also. When you think about the persons, though, who were looking at you, who said, this person, I see something. They can go run a power plant with no engineering degree, right? right. They can run HR right. with, you had a lot of people skill, though, but without a formal training in, in HR, you know, how do we ensure that there are other leaders when they are sitting in the seat that they're willing to give more people, more diverse persons, those opportunities to be seen and to be tested? Because every time they were testing you, no, I, know, no, you I know you know that. No, there's no they question. They were testing. Yeah. And then if you stumble, that you get an opportunity to stand up again. No, and, and I think that's the accountability and the expectation we have to create across all of our organizations to their, their individuals that you think have this have incredible leadership potential. Uh, what is it the profile needs to look like? What skill sets, what experiences they need to have? And it may not be what they are trained and proficient at. It may be something incredibly different because it will then give them the bandwidth to be credible across the total business. And so, yeah, let's take that risk. It's okay for you to take that risk. And, and leaders have to do that. And leaders have to do that, particularly with people uh, of diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences, whether it's race or gender or just what, just making sure we're saying, okay, how do we round them out? How do we, how do we give them this bigger portfolio of understanding and knowledge. So who knows one day they may, they may lead this company uh, because I, I mean, I, I never thought, I mean, I, I never thought until the last day when I was, when I was given offered the job and then approved by the board that this would ever happen for me. I mean, I, I never, not never one day in this company did I think about being the CEO. I mean, I thought I could do it, but I never said, okay, that is my goal. I've always had a simple focus in terms of my career path of doing a good job with the job I have, getting along, working well with others, 
being an incredible student of the business and having this kind of what I call relentless curiosity for what the future may hold and then getting results. If I do those things, there's a good chance I'm going to get another job. Uh, but I've never, I've never said, okay, I want another job. I've never applied for another job. You know, we, we have these job postings inside the company and people bid on jobs. I've never done that. I never applied for another job inside the company. Every job has come to me because of, I think, those things that I've been able to accomplish in terms of getting results, working well with others, being a good student of the business, uh, and, and hard work. And so we know, I'm glad that happened for you. We know that doesn't happen no, it doesn't happen for, no. for everybody. No. And in and, and, and many companies and in many organizations, we've had to put in structure on the diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and there's a lot of pushback. And sometimes that pushback occurs internally in companies. Sometimes it occurs externally. How do we um, change that conversation so that we don't have uh, waste time, uh, or I should say waste, but spend time talking about people being woke and people being overcommitted to taking people who uh, may not have had a chance, but then pushing somebody else down so that this person can get a chance. How do we change that rhetoric such that we actually will look around in companies and have those companies representing a representative of the communities that they are actually serving. Yeah. Let me back up and, and let me applaud you for your, your earlier comment about what happened for me is not necessarily a recipe for everybody. It happened for me. But I also have to make sure that I don't impose that on everybody else, that it, can, it will be different for others. And so institutionally, I think we have an obligation to put programs in place, to create frameworks, to create accountabilities that I think inherently says, okay, everybody's going to be given a fair shake and a fair shot to be all they can be. Now, at the same time, are we giving people of color? Are we giving females? Are we giving people different sexual orientations? Are we giving people the support that they need? And yes, uh, we see today in some places where diversity, again, has become political. And it's, it's, it's not about politics. This is, this is about fairness. This is about the opportunities and hope and opportunity that everybody deserves. This ain't about, it's not about politics. This is not about a zero-sum game where if I do something for a black person, then it, it, it then takes something away from some white folks. That's, that's not reality. That's not, that's not what happens. And so we've got to, I think, be clear that our commitment to our program, we call, we branded around moving to equity. And so as we focus on moving to equity, as we do, the framework starts with us listening and talking and understanding each other. Because I've said, I've said it to a number, number of other groups. Post-George Floyd, you know, a lot of companies and organizations have had to react and figure out what they were going to do. And we started talking. And so we had people in the company who, as, as we were talking, who had never heard of kind of driving while black, you know, in terms of, you know, well, black mothers, what they tell their sons when they get driver's license. So a lot of people of different colors did, had not heard that before. A lot of people were not familiar with the systemic hatred that Asians experienced in this country. Uh, some of it was exasperated by COVID, but just 
coming come th- throughout the generations. And so there was a lot of learnings and understanding that we had to do that moved us to actions around representation, uh, supplier diversity, uh, how we would engage in the political environment, what we would do in communities around social justice. And as we created the programs around some of those pillars, and then as we measured ourselves, as we held ourselves accountable, and then this commitment that we say, okay, what we did good at, but where we fell short, and then we start all over again. Because our biggest commitment, my biggest focus is that this work is not just a one-time PR adventure. This is a long-term journey that we're on. So that's the, the structure of our framework. But as, it, as we do this intentionally, it's saying, yes, we got to give support. We got to help people of color. We got to help women, making sure that the representation, that we focus on representation, that we're, that we're doing the right training programs. We're doing all the things to make people feel included and that they belong in this culture. And if we do those things right, that's how we move to equity. That's, that's how we achieve equity. And, you know, I, I think it's so important, uh, the lens that Southern Company has 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 taken uh, taken this on with this whole DEI experience because I think about you all are a company that services everybody. There, there's there's not an individual that's not touched by the product lines or the services that you all provide. So how could you not be representative uh, in your workforce of those people that you are? Uh, have an opportunity to serve and, and 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 while I have to say that you are a great example uh, as a leader but we also have other examples you know uh, the new Georgia Power CEO Kim Green is yes. on the board of Morehouse School of Medicine yes. yep, yep. and uh, we're so excited to have her lens and her perspective and believe me she brings that same emphasis of inclusion and opportunity absolutely inclusion and opportunity to the board so we really appreciate that I I, want to um, talk about some of the things that you all support in the community. I I always tell the story, and I have to give a a shout-out to Micah Anderson, who runs the foundation. You you know Mike's retiring. I I, I heard, I heard. After 43 years. 43 years. Incredible service to this company. Yeah, and to the community. Yeah, he deserves a break. Yeah, he he does deserve a break. And I would tell you, as a fellow Georgia Tech grad, when I first came here, he was one of the first people that came to me and wanted to know what he asked me. You know how Mike is. You want to know what my vision is for Morehouse School of Medicine. I said, well, I'm just a dean. I can't have the total vision. You know, there's a president, he said, but he wanted to be of help and service. But, he, you know, you know Mike, Mike's one of those quiet soldiers yeah. who, who is walking around kind of watching and looking and listening and but he, he is so effective at what he does, right, I mean, right. and, and making a deep impact. And, and, and we're going to yes. miss it. And I give him credit for our pipeline program. We were in the process of revamping them, and he made a commitment from the foundation uh, to support our pipeline programs for a period of four years as we uh, move those opportunities around. And, and I am very proud of the success. So you all have been a great partner to us. But you also made a commitment. Southern made a Southern Company made a commitment to supporting HBCUs in general. Yes, the whole hundred and five given opportunities for how you could uh, support that. Can you give us a little bit of insight of how you have worked on HBCUs? Man, we've always supported uh, the uh, members of the AU Center here in, in, in Atlanta and, and other institutions across our footprint. 
uh, even before COVID, even before George Floyd, we had had conversations about kind of lifting up communities and, and, and how do we, as we look at the economy and how do people break out of different stratas of economic uh, activity and, and have that opportunity uh, to enhance. And we all, we all know the roles that HBCUs offer in, in, you know, in that narrative, because uh, for, for many, if, if they didn't get a degree from HBCU, they wouldn't have gotten a degree. I mean, they may not have gone anywhere else. And so my belief always has been that, and when they graduate uh, from these wonderful uh, universities, that they not that they not only change their life, but they also change the lives of their families. And so that's how you address uh, generational issues. And so we made a commitment uh, back in January of 2020 uh, for $50 million to historically black colleges and universities uh, at that time. This once again, this is uh, before COVID, is before, uh, before, before, COVID, yeah. before the uh, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, and so I just think. I think that's important, and I'm always looking to find ways to do more, whether it's through the innovation hub that we call Propel, to trying to network all HBCUs together uh, to support the STEM learning or data data analytics learning, artificial intelligence. We're about, about now to come forth with a curriculum out of Propel to support some of that work. But I think the more things we can do, the more ways we can help, uh, graduate and prepare students at historically black colleges and universities. I think it's good for the students. It's good for the for the HBCU institutions, but it's also good for this world and good for this economy. And we've got to continue to find out more creative ways uh, to invest in HBCUs and, and partner with the students on on, at, on these campuses. Well, thank you, and I and I can tell you we have been very appreciative of the investments that have been made, and are we are definitely seeing the return on investment. So. I, I, I would be remiss if I did not touch on your vision for Southern Company. And in particular, tell us a little bit about that nuclear plant. You know, yeah, we, we like that nuclear plant yeah, we do concept. No, and, no we're uh, excited, man. We've been, we've been in, 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 in the throes of expanding a nuclear site right outside of Augusta, Georgia, in a community called Waynesboro, where we currently have two existing operating units, and we're building two more. And these will be the first two large-scale nuclear units built in this country since in over 30 years. And as we look at environmental issues, as we talk about uh, carbon-free, uh, emission-free uh, uh, generation, because power and, and electricity is important as well as gas is important to support our economies, uh, I'm, I'm bullish on the role that nuclear plays uh, in the economy. So we're looking forward to bringing these, these units online and, and having celebrations about the contributions that it will make uh, to the state of Georgia, what it would mean for, for our for our customers, but also what it would mean for our company. So uh, we are thrilled about where we are and excited about getting this done, but also getting it done right. It's not been easy, uh, but we're going to get it done. We're going to get it done right. So, so what would um, grandmother say if she was looking at you now when you were getting ready versus when you were getting ready to go off to college and she had to convince your mother that this is what you should do, what would she say to your mother about what perhaps you have accomplished? Uh, first of all, she would, she would tell me how proud of me she was. Now, uh, she wouldn't make may not exactly understand what I do. Mm-hmm. But we she, don't quite understand all of it either. But, that's but, okay. but 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 she would have some sense of of the nature of it. But first of all, she would say 
that she's very proud uh, of, of what I have accomplished. And she would then challenge me to go do more. Uh, and then she would also challenge me also to make sure that as I that I stayed faithful in my journey and that I always look at how what I can do to help somebody and how I can make a difference. I mean, she was that's just kind of who she was and what she, what she was and what she focused on. And glass was always half full, but we're always trying to help somebody. And she instilled that in you. Thank yeah, you did. so much. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. On this the is, this is an honor. It's an honor. Uh, we are so fortunate to have you, at, first of all, at Southern Company, but so also so fortunate to have you as a leader here in this community. I see you in the community. I know what you do. I know how you steward others. I know how you mentor and guide. Uh, I see you in the pew. At, at church, and so I, I know that your grandmother will be proud to see you continue to be there no matter how busy we are. So thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. In closing, we always offer three thoughts on leadership. Our first thought today is that great leadership starts in the home. Great leaders aren't born, they aren't made, but they are raised. And like Chris, quite a few of our guests over the past year have pointed to their upbringing for their success. The examples of leadership they witnessed in their parents or their grandmothers, the big mamas, whatever the names are, those people who are caregivers have helped them to shape and to be shaped into successful individuals. Lessons learned at home gave them the ability and the confidence to lead, not just themselves, but to also lead others. Second, great leaders are used to setting the pace. Many times they are the first and they typically always exceed expectation. Over the past year, we've had quite a few guests like Chris to be the first woman or the first African-American or the first Brit to hold a position. They've been the first sometimes in their families for a major accomplishment. But being the first is just one part of their success. The second part, which is most important, is that they have to perform and they get the job done. And as they get the job done, they bring others along so that they can get the job done with them. And they learn from those who they bring along. And finally, great leaders understand and embrace the moment. One of the things you heard Chris talk about was doing the job that he was in, not necessarily looking for the next job, but becoming a steward of the job that he was in and not leading in a vacuum. All leaders are shaped by the environment in which they're leading, whether it's in a power plant, on the exam floor, in, at the CDC, or running the fifth largest company in the country. They are shaped by that environment. They have to navigate that environment. They have to be flexible, they have to be agile. But Chris also talked about how those give us opportunities to make a significant progress and bring in others along. And while we may have it under the caption of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our society, 
what we're really talking about is opportunity. How do we ensure that all have an opportunity to live this dream, this dream of being able to have seats of influence? At Morehouse School of Medicine, we understand this. We understand it because we live to achieve health equity, and we define that as giving people what they need, when they need it, and the amount they need to reach their optimal level of health. So thank you for joining us for this edition of Danforth Dialogues. We hope that you will continue to tune in. And as always, in closing, we wish you good health and great success in all that you do. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.